fairly easy. Not super easy. I consider it a little more accessible. Uh, there's a lot of things to talk about, but I think they're just a little easier to understand. His point is, as we suggested, righteousness is acceptable to all. The Gentiles found it when they weren't even looking for it. It's acceptable, it's available, and the fact that the Jews didn't receive it is because of their lack of faith, not because it was hard, or because they couldn't find out about it, or didn't know about it, or whatever. So, uh, why don't we start with chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, how did Paul feel about the Jews? He greatly desired their salvation. It was his heart's desire. It was his prayer for them. We ought to pray for those we want to be saved. And, uh, you know, he just really cared about them. Um, and, and, and he talks about them in the third person. I still think the Roman church was mostly Gentile. So his prayer for them, for the Jews, is for their salvation. Now he says, to their credit, they had a zeal for God. They were zealous. Paul knew that from personal experience. Think about how zealous he was for God in his own mistaken way. A zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Zeal and sincerity are not enough. In fact, it can be pretty disastrous when you're zealous, but ignorant. Someone has said it's, it's better to limp in the right direction than to run with all your might in the wrong direction. Right? They were zealous, they were committed, they were enthusiastic, but they were going in the wrong direction. They didn't understand. Here's the problem. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They wanted a do-it-yourself approach to salvation. They refused to submit to God's way of being made righteous and innocent. They wanted to do it themselves by their own merit, by their own law-keeping, and not receive it as a gift conditioned on their faith. We've got to resist the uh, temptation to plead our case before God on the basis of all we've accomplished morally and spiritually instead of based on the sacrifice of Christ. Think about this. If somebody were to ask you, or maybe to have asked you before this study, are you saved? Some of you would say yes. And if we said, why are you saved? What would we sometimes say? Because I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. What should our first response to why are we saved be? Grace of God, sacrifice of Jesus, all that sort of thing. Primarily, that's why we're saved. Do we Have we trusted in Jesus? Is that a condition of salvation? Yes, it is. But there would be no, no salvation for those who have faith in Christ if Christ hadn't died on the cross. So primarily our salvation is because of God's grace. It's not primarily because of all we've accomplished. And worse yet, we were to say, 
well, look, I've never done this, I've never done that, I've, I've attained this goal and that goal, and, and almost with the idea, I've kind of worked my way up to salvation. You know, I've done so much, I've, and all that, I think I pretty much deserve it. No. That was the Jews' mentality. They wanted their own righteousness. They wanted to receive it by merit, by accomplishment, and God wanted to give it to them by grace, through faith, and they weren't willing to receive it that way. So what was their problem? Their problem was their own failure. It was, they wanted their own salvation, not to receive the salvation Jesus gave. Come and hear us, Jesus, through verse uh, 3. Yeah, I think if there is pride involved in that, for sure. Other thoughts? 4 to 13. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I believe the point of this is that Jesus ends any ability to try to seek the law to be right before God. Salvation of Christ makes the law irrelevant as far as justification is concerned. It becomes obvious when Christ comes that we can't be saved by the law. And so we've got to make a choice. Are we going to try to have our own salvation by law or Jesus' salvation by faith? Now, if possible, there's another meaning for end. Mike Margin says goal. Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness. And so Christ is the goal and the aim of the law. And maybe that's the point, but it seems to me like it's probably better to see he's the termination point. There's no more law for righteousness possible, uh, even conceivable, after Jesus comes. Moses writes, the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. The law of Moses gives a way to have life by keeping the law. But how many mistakes can you make and still be righteous by law? None. So the obedience that you have to have to be right by law is flawless obedience. Because all men sin then really justification by works, by law, is practically impossible. I mean practically in the sense there's no practical way to be righteous by law. Because if we sin, we can't be righteous by law. You have to live by that righteousness. You have to practice that righteousness. You have to do what it says. How many of us have completely practiced the righteousness of God? 
We've all sinned. That means for us, being right by law is not possible. But the righteousness of faith is quite different. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith we are preaching. The righteousness by faith is accessible. You don't have to go on some long, difficult journey to get there. You don't have to go up to heaven. You don't have to go down to the abyss. It's right there. God has put salvation within easy reach of man. No Herculean effort is necessary. It is not some impossible achievement. You don't have to storm heaven. You don't have to descend to the kingdom of the dead. Salvation is not remote. Salvation is very accessible in Jesus. You know, really he's saying, this is doable. This is, this is accessible. It's not too hard. Salvation by law, by works, is impossible for us in practical terms. Salvation by faith, it's, it's near us, in our mouth and in our heart. Now, Paul is citing here language from Deuteronomy 30. He doesn't say the is-it-written formula, or this is to fulfill what's written, but he cites the language of Deuteronomy 30, which in the original context is used of God's grace in making his commandments available to Israel. They didn't have to go on some long search for God's commandments, God's law. God gave it to them right there. It was easily accessible. So the same way that God made his law accessible to the Jews, God is making righteousness, salvation, acceptable to, or uh, accessible rather, uh, to, to all men in Christ. Um, and, and so he, he, he's, he's citing this to say, this is, this is available. This is, this is receivable. This is not something you have to work too hard for. It's not something that you could never achieve. He says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which you're preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he's using that same formula, in your mouth, in your heart, confess Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He reverses the order in verse 10, this is more the order that it would happen. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So the salvation in Christ, salvation by faith, is a matter of believing in our heart and confessing Jesus as Lord with our mouth. Now, clearly that is not just a mental ascent. We think there might be a God. And this is not just a verbal, Lord, Lord. There's more to both of those than that. We know that believe in Romans, is a living faith, not a dead faith. It's an obedient faith. This is not just some, I think there might be a God. This is not some, I raise my hand and say, I think Jesus exists. This is belief, true belief. Confessing with our mouth is confessing Jesus as Lord. Lord means master, ruler. It implies ownership and deity. We confess Jesus as Lord. 
not just as you know some some thing, but he's our Lord, he's our master, he's our ruler. So so these are not saying just a one time I accepted Jesus into my heart and I said I think there's that Jesus exists. This is committing ourselves by faith to the Lord. This is submitting to him as our Lord. And on that basis, we can be saved. But we can do that. That's achievable. Salvation by law, I can't get there. I sin. So it's hopeless for me. So, so he's trying to show that if the Jew isn't saved, it's not because he couldn't have been saved. It's not because he didn't have the ability. It's not because he had to go on this long journey to some remote place that he couldn't even find. No, it's right there. Mouth and heart. Now he says in verse 11, For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding riches for all who call on him. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. A fact not believed by some of the premillennialists. And, and, and it's available to all. It's universally available. Whoever turns to the Lord in faith will be saved. Now, if God makes no distinction between Jew and Greek, what kind of distinction should we make between Jew and Greek? None. How does God feel about our looking down on people of another rank or color or social status or national origin or whatever? That's, God makes no distinction. You realize how foolish before God prejudiced and favoritistic attitudes are. Who did God make? Which human beings is God responsible for? All of them. There's, there's no human being that's, that's closer to God than another by creation. God made them all. So from God's standpoint, what, what difference is there between this human being and that human being before him? They're the same. Salvation is offered on the same basis to all people because God has no favorites. It's not like, well, he really likes Americans, but I'll tell you little people, not so much. It's not like that. He, he, he is opening the opportunity to be right before him to anyone who turns to the Lord in faith. So we ought to have that same mentality. It doesn't matter who it is. We're all equal before God. Remember how the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You know, we're all sinners in need of God's grace. And so we ought to look at all other sinners as people who need God's grace, and we want them to receive that by faith as well. So he says, for whoever will call them in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I think the Lord here is Jesus, what he says in verse uh, 9 and 10. And uh, it's interesting because calling on the name of the Lord in Joel was the name of Jehovah, the name of capital Lord. Jesus is Jehovah. Jehovah God is not only the Father. Jehovah God refers to all the beings in the Godhead. Uh, we should call upon the name of Jesus, and that means we appeal to him, we worship him, and we should do that. All should honor the Son just like they honor the Father, John 5, 23. Any worship that's appropriate to the Father is appropriate to the Son. We call upon the Son. But calling upon Jesus, does that mean just saying, Lord, Lord, and not doing what he says? 
Well, Luke 6, 46 says no. Does it mean it's calling Lord, Lord, but not doing the will of the Father? Well, Matthew 7, 21 says no. Ananias explained to Saul how to call them in the name of the Lord. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We call upon the name of the Lord by appealing to him in the way he's taught in faith. So we call on Jesus by repenting and being baptized and living for him. That's, that's our call. That's our appeal to the Lord. But again, the point he's making here is salvation is accessible, it's available, it's doable. I can believe in Jesus. I can call upon him and make him my Lord. I can, I can, I can turn to him and, and devote my life to him. I can't be perfect. I forfeited that already. So if the Jews aren't saved, whose fault is that? They could have been. It was available. It was even found by people who weren't looking for it. So you can't say that it was just too remote, it was too, too mysterious, it was too hard, it was, no, it wasn't any of those things. So God has the right to decide which Jews are Jews, and all, any Jew who wanted to could have easily turned to the Lord Jesus and received salvation himself. Thoughts and comments? That was a lot of verses, Matt. So what is the significance of like, this entire portion in verses 6 through uh, 8? It's kind of a re-paraphrasing of what was stated in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Is that to point out to the Jews that uh, even though the old law was easily accessible for you, and that it also pointed to uh, this being for both the Jews and the Gentiles? I think what he's saying is justification in Christ is just as accessible as the law was to the Jews. That the law was not hard for them to get, it was right there. Justification by faith in Christ is not hard to get, it's right there. He's using the same kind of language to say it's just as accessible as the law was. Other thoughts, questions, comments? It's a heavy weight to digest right now. Just to think how powerful the law is, how specific it is. Yet, because of we and for the teachers, we could not do our own there. I think it's home for me just how much we need the gospel. We do. And how much it is important, and how important it is necessary, in more ways than I think a lot of people need to realize. It's very easy to try to win things on your own. Even I struggle with this. I struggle with that product last time. So it will never work. It, no, it doesn't. And to be around this environment and to look at that and realize, to me, it's a humbling reminder of just what Christ did for me. Mm-hmm. That's how I can relate to it. Because I try to do it on my own. It does not work. Clearly, if you tried it. But you'll earn it. It's a gift. And to me, that is just mind-blowing how much God loved us so much. And did that sacrifice, and the way it grieved him to do so. Yes. It cost him more than it cost us. Yes. And I can't imagine giving my son for someone like that. I couldn't fathom that. To me, as a human, I, I, I wouldn't do it myself, well, to my son to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Other comments? Okay, yeah, about 14 to 21. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has obeyed or who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. But I, how far are you going to get To the end of the chapter. Okay. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you an angel. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been bound by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay. So Paul analyzes the process of calling on the Lord. He does that for a purpose. We'll see here in a minute. So how can they call on him in whom they've not believed? Couldn't do that, could you? Got to believe to be able to call on him. How will they believe in whom they've not heard? Could you believe in Jesus if you never heard of him? That would be impossible. And how will they hear without a preacher? Can you hear without somebody to tell you? Well, that doesn't work. You know, gospel doesn't fall like rain by accident. It comes through people that have been sent. How will they preach unless they're sent? You know, if God doesn't send somebody, then they won't have the preacher won't come. Just as it's written, how beautiful the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Have you ever looked at uh, preachers' feet? You don't normally think of feet as being all that beautiful, right? But this message is so good that even unattractive feet look beautiful to the people receiving the good news of the gospel. It's a beautiful feet because they bring the gospel message to us. But... Somewhere other, the process broke down. So look at the process. Jesus sends the heralds. I'll use the word herald. You know that word, the announcers. The heralds preach. The people hear. The hearers believe. The believers call on the Lord. Those who call on the Lord are saved. Let me go through that again. I want you to hear this. I want you to think about what he's saying. If you analyze the process, it starts with Jesus sending out the proclaimers. The proclaimers proclaim. The people hear. The hearers believe. The believers call the name of the Lord. Those who call are saved. So what we want to know is where did the breakdown occur? What step in the process broke the connection? So did Jesus send the heralds? Yes. Did the heralds preach? Yes. Did the people hear? Yes. Did the hearers believe? There's the problem. Verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? The hearers did not believe the message that was delivered. Whose fault was that? It's their fault. God sent out the preachers. The preachers did the preaching and they heard it, but they refused to believe it. So, the Jews' failure is because of their lack of faith. 
It wasn't because they couldn't receive it. It wasn't because it was too hard, too inaccessible, they never heard about it. They had everything, and they refused to believe. That was the issue. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Hearing is a vital part of the process, clearly. Jesus often exhorted people to hear. Everyone who's got a hear, an ear, hear. You know, that was kind of the idea. Uh, believing doesn't come from a feeling or experience. It comes from hearing the gospel. So we've got willing. When you think about how belief comes from hearing, we see the importance of teaching and studying. We've got to learn. We've got to listen. Uh, saving faith arises only when we when we hear. So so the hearing is fundamental. But they heard, they just didn't believe. He says, verse 18, but I say, surely they never heard of it. The problem must be they just didn't hear. And he answers, indeed they have. Their voice has gone into out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now, do you know that passage he's quoting? Again, he doesn't say it is written or this is fulfilled, but he quotes a passage there. In the original context, where was that passage and what was it talking about? Psalm 19 talking about creation and how creation speaks to everyone everywhere about the mercy and grace of God. Right? That's what you're seeing there. Now, so this is, in, in Psalm 19, this isn't talking about the gospel going out. This is talking about how the sun, moon, and stars bear witness constantly to all the world of the greatness of God. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So, what's Paul saying? He's saying the gospel has been disseminated as widely as the light of the heavenly bodies. Just as much as we can see the glory of God by the heavenly bodies glowing, so the gospel has been spread to where everybody can see the grace and light of the Lord. Their voice has gone out to all the earth. Their world, which is the end of the world. So what's the problem? The problem is not a hearing issue. The gospel is spread. Everybody's heard. I wonder if that's so true. It's a shame if there are still many people who've never heard. That's our job. But here, the Jews heard. Everybody heard. They didn't want to do what they should have with that. Well, he said, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Maybe this took Israel by surprise. It caught them off guard. No, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding of will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and said, I was found by those who did not seek me, I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Both Moses and Isaiah predicted God's acceptance of the Gentiles. Moses and Isaiah is right, been around for a long time. Jews had every reason to know that. Didn't catch him by surprise. It was right in their, it was right in their scriptures. The universal destination of the gospel was not a surprise. As I said, the promise to Abraham. You wonder where the Jews were. All the nations of the earth. My favorite. I've used this before, I'm sure I use it all the time. But Isaiah 19. I just can't believe the Jews didn't cut this out of their Bibles. Isaiah 19, 24. In that day, 
Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Whoa! Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, Israel, my inheritance. Was there any doubt that the gospel was to go to everyone in every nation? This was not something that was unheard of in the Old Testament. You start looking at all over the Old Testament the, the, that in the Messiah all the nations would be blessed. This was not something that they didn't know. And as for Israel, Isaiah says, all the day long I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So the rejection of God's uh, appeal to the Jews is also something that, that God had, had predicted. Now, I will say this. This passage in Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2, quoted in 20 and 21, many people don't understand that Isaiah's use of that passage is the same as Paul's use here. I think it is. I think Paul is accurately understanding Isaiah 65. And then verse 1 is talking about the Gentiles, and verse 2 about the Jews. So, I realize some have a hard time with this because they think that's not what Isaiah originally meant. But I think it is. I think Paul's right about that. Uh, and notice for Israel, all day long I stretch out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. They were resistant, they were, they were rebellious, but God kept stretching his hands out to them anyway. They had every opportunity. God was pleading with them, imploring them, sending prophets and apostles and all that to, to, to try to reach out to them. So the point of this chapter is to assign the blame for the Jews' failure to be justified before God. The blame was not God's failure, Israel's failure. It was Israel's own fault. Everything was ready. Everything was prepared. Everything was accessible. The problem was, they didn't listen. They didn't receive it. They didn't turn to the Lord. What can you say? So this is a powerful point. God promises that the Jews have not failed. God has always chosen which descendants of Abraham would be his people. And the righteousness is acceptable, accessible to all. The Jews had every opportunity. They just refused to receive it. Thoughts and comments. Through chapter 2. Make sense? That's a pretty easy chapter by comparison to what we've been looking at. Alright, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10.